I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, a series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is Thomas Heghammer, Senior Research Fellow at the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment and the author of numerous books, including uh, Jihad in Saudi Arabia, edited volume on jihadi culture, and uh, uh, currently working on a, a history of Islamic militancy uh, around the world. Uh, Thomas, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you've been looking at uh, the evolution of these jihadist movements in the Middle East and globally for, for a long time. How would you assess the current state of the, of the field of, of jihadist militancy and the various movements and uh, organizations that are fighting in its name? So right now, I sense that we are at a crossroads, um, much like the one we were at around 2011. Uh, we have just kind of weakened or dented uh, the kind of the, the big actor in the sort of jihadi landscape. Um, now it's Islamic State and back in 2010, 2011, it was Al-Qaeda. So there's a degree of optimism, we kind of beat back uh, sort of the big monster um, and uh, specialists are kind of uh, slightly optimistic, slightly pessimistic, disagreeing a little bit among themselves where things are going, much like was the it was mm -hmm. the case back in twenty twenty eleven. So uh, it's a, it's an interesting time to have this conversation. I think. Do you do you think that the Islamic State has been defeated? Uh, certainly not, uh, but the territorial uh, part of it mm -hmm. uh, is gone. The, the proto-state uh, is practically destroyed. So what you have instead is an underground uh, guerrilla organization in Iraq and Syria, and you have a franchise of um, organizations of various types around the world that sort of mm -hmm. claim its name, much like the Al-Qaeda franchise model we, we right. saw emerge in the 2000s and that is still around to some extent. Well, but to me, it always seemed that the creation of this uh, territorial proto-state was the major innovation that the Islamic State made within the jihadist universe. Um, so isn't destroying the territorial caliphate actually a a fairly significant blow to what they were trying to achieve? Absolutely, yeah. It, it, it uh, severely undermines their, their message, which was one of, uh, kind of uh, optim optimism and momentum and strength, etc. Uh, their famous slogan was remaining and expanding, and they can't really say that anymore with a straight face. Um, of course, they've adapted, as these types of groups do, turning, you know, adapting their message to the circumstances, blaming mm -hmm. um, external factors uh, and blaming others for what has happened. So they, they, they're, they're, you know, to their most ardent followers, they're still able to kind of um, convey some kind of so a message that this, that still has some traction, mm -hmm. 
but of course it's a completely different you know, thing today than it was in 2014-15 when it was at, at its zenith. I feel like a lot of people they struggle with this because on the one hand they want to push back against the notion that ISIS has been defeated and yet at the same time you I think we do have to recognize the importance of that territorial loss and, and what, what follows from it. Mm. To, what do you see in terms of the effect that has on the other Islamic State franchises elsewhere? Do you see that they've learned any lessons from what has happened to the organization in in Syria and Iraq? Um, I think there is there has been a kind of a general learning process within the uh, Islamic State family, mm-hmm. which is that uh, which is that which is about deterrence, which is about uh, the limits of uh, violence. Yeah. That you have to be careful how far you go. You have to be particularly careful about launching operations uh, in the West or across borders because that is the type of thing that provokes the harshest response from the big military powers of the world. That, that lesson Al-Qaeda learned in the course of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I think that's. I think the, the, the America was able to establish deterrence to, to a large degree towards these local affiliates, and that's part of a big part of the reason I think why many of them, like Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb or or, or other affiliates of Al Qaeda, rarely uh, perpetrated mm-hmm. these sort of international attacks and operated locally. It reminds and, me of, the, of that famous exchange between Zarqawi and uh, Ayman al Zawahiri over the targeting of Shiites and uh, the excess of violence in Iraq. Yes, there's that too. Yeah, exactly. So, but, and, and I, th- the way I see it, the, 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 the Islamic State terrorism campaign in Europe in 2015, 16, 17 happened because it was a, a new generation of leaders. Uh, mm-hmm. in, there was a new generation of leaders in place who hadn't quite realized or internalized the repercussions of such a strategy. But I think that now, even in the Islamic State family, there is a growing realization that if you want to stay alive, uh, or if you want to keep some kind of operation locally, you want to be careful about what you you do. So I I suspect that at least the medium term effect of this will be a certain type, certain kind of taming Hmm. Of the of the uh, Islamic State animal, so if 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 the Islamic State no longer has a state, and it doesn't differentiate itself by its extreme violence, what what's left of that as an alternative to Al Qaeda or as this new creature in the jihadist world? Mm. That's a a good question. I <clears throat> I, I can only speculate, but. But I, w- I should think that they can they have a stronger claim to delivery to having delivered something big. If you think about it, Al Qaeda never really delivered anything apart from the 9/11 attack. And uh, in a sort of a school debate uh, with, with an IS representative and Al Qaeda representative, the IS kind of representative would, 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 would crush the, the AQ one because he could point to the caliphate, the proto-state. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only that, I mean, they, 
they they broke down an international border for a period of years. No non-state organization in the Middle East had done that in, a, in about a hundred years. So it's an it's a it's it's a, it's a it's really a phenomenal exploit when you think about it uh, from a sort of a, mm -hmm. from the perspective of a non-state actor like that. And so uh, in the future, when they when these two brands compete over customers, they I think IS has a has a, has an advantage in mm -hmm. in that regard. And also they have the the advantage of it being more close in time. Uh, there's more people around to remember it, and they, while they had this state, they made sure to document it profusely. And so there's this enormous body of Im images and films that show the caliphate in its best possible light. So, um, and I, one of the, I mean, there's people debate the the kind of the life expectancy of the Islamic State, and the, the big debate for for a long time has been over. Uh, between those who view Islamic State as kind of a, uh, an expression of sort of a youthful hubris that will mm -hmm. uh, wane because there's no intellectual depth behind it, it's, it's too extreme, etc. I have for a while been of the opposite view that I, I expect it to last for, for quite, a, quite a while um, because I think the, that the type of people who look to the type of organizations like IS and AQ, they don't, they look for the extreme. They look for the kind of the, the most badass mm -hmm. group on the on the market. They don't look for number number two. If they look for number two, they might as well look for number three, you know, which is a, a group further down. If you look for, if they want pragmatism, there's a much bigger menu. So it's usually about, I think that the, the, it's the the group that manages to create the most most noise and, 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 and kind of be in the spotlight more that runs away with most of the, hmm. the customers and and um, and I think IS is fairly well positioned in that regard. And we also have to bear in mind that um, that yeah ob objectively speaking we can we can we, you know, we can make a case can make a logical case why you know the, the message you know why they they over promised didn't deliver etc etc but Fast forward, let's say five years, ten years down the line, the, the people who will be, you know, candidates for supporting or joining, they won't remember any of this. They won't. Ha they were not around. They were. They were children when this happened, and hmm. so they will only f be. They will only kind of make their decision based on the kind of the glossy version that they are presented with by the representatives of Islamic State. So, so. so they will be less affected. They will have forgotten the the excesses, the the dysfunctions, the broken promises, mm -hmm. etc. That we know about now, uh, and they will look at the old glossy pictures of the 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 the, 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 the farms right. and the mar markets, crude markets. And, and well, that, that's really interesting. I mean, I wonder if there's a tension there. Like as these move back into basically being local insurgencies in Middle Eastern countries, does that retain the same level of appeal to, say, young European uh, Muslims who, as you say, they want uh, whatever the hot, you know, trendy thing is as the vehicle for their antisocial tendencies and, and, and that sort of thing? You know, does the, does the franchise, does this imagery, does it translate 
once you've gone back to just being a bunch of underground local insurgencies again? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I, I think, um, yeah, I, th I think if, if you, you, I think if you are a jihadi group, you don't need to do all that many kind of transnational operations to, to, to attract uh, international supporters. If you have a, a well-running you know, operation locally that, that does things, then people will come to you. Uh, people will mm -hmm. be interested in traveling there from Europe. Uh, to to join that uh, that group because I mean uh, the usually the the kind of the the trajectory uh, the kind of intellectual trajectory of uh, jihadis you know doesn't go from zero to you know blowing up buses in Europe it passes through stages uh, of activism that uh, you know that are considered more legitimate mm -hmm. so there will always be more people who are who think who will think that it's more it's legitimate to go and support uh, a guerrilla group in Iraq or in Yemen mm -hmm. or something then there will be people prepared to attack people in, 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 in the cities in, in Europe because it's it's just uh, more norm-breaking mm -hmm. and and so uh, so um, I don't necessarily think that it's, it's the terrorist attacks in the in the West that is the, the main uh, mechanism for attracting. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's interesting if you go back to those earlier turning points. You mentioned 2010, 2011. I think you could also look back at 2002, um, a time when Al-Qaeda, as it was at the time in Afghanistan, had been decimated. And I think there were very similar conversations at the time uh, about how you know, the message is still out there on the Internet and on satellite television, inspiring, you know, people in Europe and uh, globally to do these things. And they navigated that particular, you know, crossroads um, in part by taking advantage of Iraq. And then 2011, you know, the same thing, as you said a moment ago the death of bin Laden and everything else, but then it was Iraq and Syria, again, which comes to the rescue, offering these new opportunities. So look at where we are now. What, what would it be? What, what are there life rafts that are out there for the, the, the broader movement uh, that would might maybe be the venue for this new adaptation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and some of them we know about. Uh, and some of them we probably don't know about because they're unpredictable. I mean, they had, we had this conversation in 2010. Neither of us, I think, would have put Syria high on a list like that. And, uh, you know, five years down the line, you know, something might have broken out in, in Egypt mm -hmm. or in Algeria mm -hmm. or in Pakistan, for all we know. And these black swans... Uh, uh, you know, they have to be part of our. our so analysis. the opportunity will present itself, even it, if we don't know what it is. Yeah, but in addition to that, we have some kind of known uh, areas of activity, and today uh, these are mainly in the Sahel, so in West Africa, uh, and still in Syria uh, to some extent, mm -hmm. although. The, the importance of the Levant or, or Iraq and Iraq as an epicenter is decreasing. Um, and then, of course, you have Yemen, and then you have uh, Somalia, 
sort of cluster, and then you have uh, Afghanistan with a Taliban that's probably stronger than than ever, and uh, also a you know, mm -hmm. small Islamic State branch. So, so there's opportunities out there. Yeah, so you can talk about kind of I guess f f four, yeah, roughly four mm -hmm. sort of uh, zones. And even though we are better off today than three years ago, uh, in terms of overall activity, we are still probably. And I'm generalizing here, of course, mm -hmm, that there are mm -hmm. lots of variation, but I think we're probably, you know, at a higher level than in 2011. Well, if you think about, you mentioned, you know, you have like the starting off with ISIS and Al Qaeda, but then you have all these other different movements and organizations. And I'm curious what you think, how you would assess the current kind of state of those other non non ISIS or even non jihadist uh, Islamist organizations. So, for example, the the Muslim Brotherhood is probably the weakest it's been in a long time after being crushed in Egypt, and you know, with the Gulf Cooperation Council cracking down against it. Um, and so, does that strengthen or weaken uh, the global jihadist movement if you have that kind of non jihadist Islamist organization? facing all of these new pressures and, and the like? Mm. That's a great question, and I don't have the answer. Uh, but it's clearly of, of great interest uh, that we've had this backlash against the Brotherhood and, and, and other nonviolent uh, Islamist organizations, especially among elites and among the mm -hmm. government, notably in the, in, in, in the Gulf. Um, and of course, uh, this is accompanied in the Gulf with a different approach to, you know, uh, disseminating Salafi uh, ideas abroad. Saudi Arabia is has has, has uh, cut down uh, its kind of exports mm -hmm. uh, or its financing of kind of mosque buildings and, and that sort of thing abroad, uh, and. Um, I, I have been thinking about this recently, but I'm, I, haven't, I haven't kind of come up with a good answer. I, it, can, it can cut both, both, both ways, I, I think. There hasn't really been any systematic research on this that, I, that I'm aware of at this point. No, it seems like a fertile uh, area for uh, for an ambitious young scholar to right, right. to dig into. Well, part of the problem also is, is as you know, uh, the information problem. That mm -hmm. uh, you know, as states become more authoritarian, as as this internet becomes more censored, um, and as as media in the region become more kind of controlled by the governments, it's just harder to know what is actually happening. Uh, mm -hmm below the surface. So and we were talking a few minutes ago uh, about how the uh, the internet is also drying up as a source as a lot of the jihadist material is being taken offline. Yeah, so in so there are a bunch of things happening uh, that could uh, uh, with optimistic glasses um, uh, have a, a, a big effect on the future of the jihadi movement and the uh, crackdown on the internet is one of those. So uh, we have been through a period in the early 2010s of uh, historically kind of high or, or low, uh, high levels of freedom on the internet for non-state actors uh, like the jihadis. And they took advantage of that. And I think IS and other groups is 
partly an, an, an effect of this sort of, uh, what I've called it before, the digital empowerment revolution uh, in the early 2010s. But that's changed completely as governments around the world have uh, cracked down on this and implemented sort of systematic censorship uh, systems, etc. There are still uh, pockets online where mm -hmm. communication and distribution happens, but it's much smaller than it was just four years ago. So the question I ask myself is, you know, you know, what happens to an ideological movement when it doesn't have a communication platform anymore, uh, or or when that communication platform is much smaller than before, when you can't disseminate uh, propaganda to prospective new mm -hmm. recruits, when you only you can perhaps only reach a small number of people of already committed people through like secret channels, etc. But if you know, in order to grow to replenish the ranks, you need to be able to reach new people. And that capability, as, as as of now, is severely dented. And over time, if you, if if states manage are able to keep that hegemony mm -hmm. on the internet, I, I suspect that it will weaken the, the movement. How would you respond to this perennial argument that people have about uh, about jihadist movements? Uh, on the one hand, you have the people who argue that basically this is just a function of failing states, uh, viol you know, the conditions of of civil violence and the like, and so uh, basically it can take whatever idiom it wants, but really it's about the institutions and, and the conditions on the ground, versus those who place a lot of emphasis on the ideas themselves and, and the movements and and their ideologies, and basically would argue, I would assume, that they would continue to act and persist even if the underlying conditions uh, changed. So you bring peace to Syria and Iraq from the one camp, that would dry up the support for jihadist movements and uh, they would simply, you know, stop mattering. But on the other hand, it would be the other camp would say, no, the ideas would keep me and these people would just keep fighting, even if the underlying drivers of conflict seem to go away. In, in your approach to all of this, how, how would you come down within those two kind of generic ways of thinking about what really matters with the with the jihadist movements. So you said we had two hours for this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no, we actually have two minutes. <laughs> um, it's, uh, the question is obviously both. Uh, they're, 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 these material uh, factors uh, are very important, but there is an ideological dimension here that we mustn't lose out of sight. And what, put very simply, I think we can say you know, roughly that these that these kind of uh, ins these sort of insurgencies or you know big armed conflicts they happen for pre pre predominantly material reasons, but they produce uh, actors, rebel groups that take a life of their own, mm -hmm. and some often some of those groups they they kind of go so far down the the line that they become kind of almost insensitive to the kind of objective realities on the ground. And uh, so, uh, for example, to take, you know, this debate about the role of Western foreign policy, uh, then, you know, on one level it's clear that like something like the Iraq war had a tremendous uh, kind of effect uh, in this regard and it fueled the global jihadi movement uh, tremendously and unnecessarily. Um, but that does not mean that now, if the West withdraws completely 
uh, you know, militarily and economically, that jihadi violence would stop. It's take the, uh, the 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 genius is out of the bottle in some sense. And on among the activists on the uh, on the far end of the spectrum, you know, they can almost twist almost anything uh, into a grievance or a reason for war, a reason to 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 attack. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's very complicated, complicated, <laughs> but, but it's, um, but, I, so I, but I think you, you kind of have to bear in mind kind of that, you know, different factors can matter differently at different stages in history and at a t in time matters, yeah. some, it matters, some things matter more in the beginning, other th factors matter more later on. And also, matter, it, you have to differentiate between the large groups and the small groups, mm -hmm. like the large militias that depend on supporting the population, the more cult-like groups that live in their own bubble. Well, we'll have to have you back on to uh, to continue uh, uh, picking this apart. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Thomas Heghammer of the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment, uh, author of multiple books, and uh, soon to be the author of, uh, of a path-breaking biography of Abdullah Azam, uh, Mujahideen, History of Islamic Militants. And uh, Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure.